Well, tonight is our penultimate session, as we have these last number of Sunday evenings together focused upon prayer. So tonight is our penultimate session, our sixth session, and we're thinking tonight about a praying church in a pagan world. A praying church in a pagan world. We're going to read from Acts chapter 12. Please, Acts chapter 12, and we'll read together through to verse 19. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentry stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick! Get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what had happened, what the angel was doing, what, what, what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's, Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also Mark. There were many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the door, at the outer entrance, and the servant girl, Rhoda, came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed, so she ran back without opening the, the door to him and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, 
he cross-examined the gods and ordered that they be executed. This is God's word. Let's pray for a moment. We thank you, Father, for this quite extraordinary account in the history of the Christian church. It seems in so many ways so extraordinary that perhaps we feel in our inner selves that it can't be true. Just a story dreamt up, a, a line of fiction perhaps. But this is the word of God. We believe it to be a true account of what happened in those early years of the Christian church. Open our eyes, Father, we pray. Give us understanding, we ask. What really happened on this occasion? And how, Father, does it, can it impact upon us today? And so by your Holy Spirit, we would covet your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. It is claimed that Mary, Queen of Scots, once said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than I fear all the armies on the face of the earth. Arguably, that was probably the last time anyone feared the prayers of the church. It's hard to imagine Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin, or Xi Jinping saying, I fear the prayers of the saints more than I fear all the armies of the world. Wouldn't you agree? It seems to me the world does not fear the church anymore. Rather, it tolerates it. Generally, the world perceives the church as no longer a player in world affairs. Only an observer, a kind of yes man for the pagan leaders of Western culture. A culture that has long since abandoned Christian presuppositions as a serious voice in shaping the values of modern society. The church is perhaps a quaint relic of the past that lends a certain, a certain charm to the neighborhood. A holdover from bygone days. Arguably, it's big in presence, but harmless. Something like a beached whale. For many, the most crucial question facing the church is whether it is going to survive at all. Well, I can answer that question. Yes, the church will survive. You see, God has never left himself without a witness. 
and his church will still be around when the curtain comes down upon this whole sorry mess that we find ourselves in in the free west in these days. Granted, the church might not survive in its present form, but God help us if we're only interested in surviving. Christ intends his church to do a whole lot more than simply survive. The opening statement of Harold Linsell's excellent book, The New Paganism, is, I quote, The post-Christian age is here. The book shows that the Western world has been overcome by paganism. Lindell writes, again I quote, In the West, the civilization based on Judeo-Christian foundations has collapsed. In its place, the West, without exception, lives and functions in a pagan world. It's difficult to argue against that, isn't it? The church, it seems, is treading water in a sea of paganism surrounded by a hostile world that hates, hates New Testament Christianity and consequently, therefore, wages an unrelenting war upon New Testament Christianity. Whether we call the prevailing culture paganism or neo-paganism or secular humanism, one thing is clear. Our generation has witnessed what may be the final death blow to the Judeo-Christian foundation upon which most of the Western world has been, past tense, established. The current and prevailing climate is, of course, nothing new to the church. Remember, friends, the church was born in the midst of paganism and conquered it. Hallelujah. Oh, yes. 300 years after the beginning of Christ's public ministry, the church had brought the Roman Empire to its knee. How? How did that little band of eager disciples accomplish what no military power, it seems, was able to do? Did they possess something that we do not possess? Did they know something that we do not know? Did they enjoy a revelation that is not available to us? Well, the answer to these questions and others, I'm sure, can be found in the record God has preserved of those pioneering Christians. 
A more revealing picture of the life and times of the early church cannot be found than the one we have in Acts chapter 12, can it? Acts chapter 12 opens with a bang. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, brother of John, put to death with the sword. He saw that it pleased the Jews and he proceeded to seize Peter. Herod assigned 16 soldiers to God, Peter. Wow. 16 soldiers to God, One man. Do you think Herod was afraid of Peter? Or perhaps more is the point, afraid of the God Peter served. It seemed, as we look at the context, that that, that there was no escape for Peter. No reprieve for Peter. But in verse 5, friends, we have the key to this entire extraordinary episode. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And we know the story so well, don't we? God came. Oh, the situation seemed quite out of Peter's hands, out of the church's hands, it seemed impossible. But God came. Sent his angel, of course. And the angel met with Peter there in that cell. And the chains fell from him. And we don't know how, we don't necessarily need to know how. It was miraculous. And cell door after cell door simply opened before them as the angel led Peter miraculously to freedom. God came in the midst of a pagan culture, surrounded with with, with odds incredibly stacked against them. God came. Four observations, if I may. I keep looking up to the clock. Old habits die hard. Two minutes to seven. Let's see what we can do in ten. Four observations. The church and the world are deadly enemies. Isaac Watts in his old hymn asks... Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on to God? Well, the answer then was no. My friends, the answer now is equally no. The early church understood this. I'm not entirely sure whether the 21st century church does. I think many still hope that we can, as a church, make up with the world. 
that we can become better friends with the world. Or at the very least live in a peaceful coexistence with the world. Jared C. Wilson observed, I quote, Getting the unbelieving world to approve of the church was never ever the goal. And it's a losing game, one that has already cost us much. You see, friends, from our text, the church and the world are deadly enemies. The enmity between the church and the world is enunciated by the Apostle John in his first letter. We have in 1 John 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of his eyes, and the boastings of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. John doesn't mince his words, does he? My friends, the church and the world are deadly enemies. John, rather interestingly, uses the word world more often than all the other New Testament writers combined. 79 times in his gospel, he uses the word world. And 23 times in this first epistle. Now, the world that we are to shun, my friends, is not the world of nature. It's not the created order. It's not the material universe. Nor is it the world of people, the human race, the world as a fallen world in need of God's grace. No, the world that we are to shun is the world as a system that is organized without God and against God. The world is a system in its unbelieving pagan state. A society embodying the influences and forces hostile to God. George C. Finley in his book Fellowship in the Life Eternal says the world about which John warns us is not made up of so many outward objects that can be specified. It is the sum of those influences emanating from men and things around us which draw us away from God. It is, he says, the awful down-dragging current in life. The world is human civilization organized and operating under the power of evil. And my friends, the world, this world and the church are deadly enemies. There's another aspect to this fact, first fact of the church and the world being deadly enemies that needs to be noted. And we have it in, in the text. The enemies of Christ, friends, notice, always unite against him. The enemies of Christ always unite against him. 
When Herod killed James with the sword, he saw that it pleased the Jews. And so he took steps to kill Peter also. Now friends, Herod's actions here were not motivated by great principles or deep convictions. They were motivated by a sorry desire to win the popularity of the Jews. Here was Herod. (laughs) Joining forces with the Jews against Christ and his church. This persecution under Herod Agrippa I was the third major attack on the apostles, even at this early stage of the church. The first was led by the Sadducees, the second by the Pharisees. Now, for those who know the church history, you will know that Pharisees and Sadducees generally were like cat and dog enemies. And for the most part were divided against each other. But in the early years of the Christian church, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they joined, they united together against Christ and his church. A a parallel in our day is, is how the isms, I guess, have united against Christianity. Have you noticed? Secularism has joined with humanism. And now we have a secular humanism against Christianity. Liberalism has joined with pluralism. Hedonism has blended into existentialism. And atheism has joined them all against Christ and his church. All this means that every major idea and philosophy shaping our world right now is opposed to New Testament Christianity. And my friends, I believe, under the power of the enemy of our souls, Satan himself intends to wipe New Testament Christianity off the face of the earth. The church has imbibed more of these philosophies than it realizes, sadly, And much of its message, much of its ministry is becoming an ism in sheep's clothing. The real hope for our society is that somehow, some way, the Christian church will recapture something of its distinctiveness. We're spending so much time trying to capitulate to the world, trying to please the world, trying to make friends with the world, we need to realize, in point of fact, that the church and the world are enemies. The more the church looks like the world, the more the church talks like the world, the more the church operates like the world, the more, I believe, the world disdains the church. Actually, we need to be distinctive. For in our distinctiveness, there lies our power. In our distinctiveness, there lies our power. Very quickly, I've got two and a half minutes. Second observation, the success of evil. Friends, bless God tonight, is only apparent. You read 
these scriptures in Acts chapter 12. And for a moment you think to yourself, oh my, my goodness, evil is succeeding. The enemy is having his way. The saints of God are arrested, they are tortured, they are murdered. But my friends, success, the success of evil is only apparent. If you, granted, focused upon the death of James and and just focused upon that, then it does seem, if there were no independent, unrelated events, it does seem that once again evil wins. Once again, somehow, some way, God has been outmaneuvered by the devil. But when you gather everything together within the Acts of the Apostles, including the, the other verses of chapter 12, you realize that in point of fact, the success of evil is only apparent. I say that because if God wanted to save James, he could. He could. We have to conclude that God allowed by his gracious, perfect will, the death of James for the greater good of the kingdom of God. We know he could because God saved Peter. Yes. We look at our world today, have loads of scriptures, I haven't time to read them. Go home and read them. Psalm 73, Psalm 37, Psalm 2, Psalm 4, Psalm... We can go on, can't you? We we look at our world today and we can find ourselves despairing. Oh, the enemy! He appears to be having his own way. He appears to be enslaving the, the, the Christian church. He appears to be nullifying the witness of Christ in his church. But the success of evil is only apparent. Just look at how God delivered Peter. When God wants to, in his best and perfect will and purpose, he does. And he will. Quickly, I have minus five seconds. God's hand, thirdly, God's hand, though unseen, is working. We cannot always accurately interpret our situation. Often outside circumstances contradict everything we believe. It is impossible to evaluate a situation on the basis of visible evidence. Remember when when Christ, Jesus, asked Philip if he would feed the 5,000? Philip's response was from a, a physical perspective. He wasn't seeing things spiritually, was he? His response to Christ proves that he was seeing things physically. He, he, he spoke about buying enough food for themselves, never mind for the 5,000. Like Philip, if we, we often find ourselves in the midst of our extremity, digging into our pockets, into the pockets of our own resources, and finding them to be blank, insufficient, inadequate. Friends, they always will be. We have to understand that we live the life of faith by faith. It's not what we see with the naked eye that matters. It's what we see with the eye of faith. Peter's situation seemed impossible to the naked eye. But when you see it with the eye of faith, all things are possible 
for Almighty God, who in His will and perfect will decides to step into reality. Final observation. The unseen hand of God is moved by prayer. You were wondering when I was going to come to that, weren't you? The unseen hand of God is moved by prayer. The church's response to Peter's imprisonment is humbling. If they were good Baptists, they might well have they might well have arranged a deacons' meeting to be followed by a, a members' meeting with uh, appropriate uh, recommendations from the diaconate. If they were Anglicans, they might have well referred to the General Synod for some kind of leading or guidance from, from the top archbishops and the council. But what do they do? When they heard about Peter's imprisonment, verse 5, the church earnestly prayed to God for him. It seems to me that the author of the Acts would have us know that there was a vital connection between the deliverance of Peter and the prayers of the church. Wouldn't you agree? I hesitate to say that God's hand is moved by prayer because it almost sounds as though I'm infringing upon God's sovereignty. Yet, my friends, in the light of what we are learning here in Acts chapter 12, I think the wording is legitimate. God's hand was moved by prayer. Prayer does move the hand of God. Instead of casting prayer as a kind of polite nod to tradition or as a piece of, of uh, pietistic irrelevance, we must see it as the true power of the church. Clearly the early church here didn't have enough influence, didn't have enough prestige to get Peter out of prison by natural resource. But they had enough power to pray him out. And even even they didn't know how strong they were in their praying. For they didn't believe that actually it was Peter standing at the door when he did. Friends, the church has more power than it knows. The church has more power than it realizes. Much is being said and written about our desperate need today for an evangelical awakening like the one that came to England in the late 18th century under the ministry of John Wesley and, and George Whitfield and, and the contemporaries. Or like the one that came to Wales in the early 20th century under the ministry of Evan Roberts. Church historians claim that the 18th century evangelical revival spared England from a bloody revolution like the one that tore France apart. J. Edwin Orr, in his remarkable book, The Eager Feet, tells of the concert of prayer, as he beautifully puts it, the concert of prayer started by the Baptist Association of the Midlands 
It was a concert that was joined by the members of the free churches, the Methodists, the Anglicans, and other burdened believers. And from that concert of prayer, they paved the way for the general awakening. There's now the 18th century revival. Friends, how we need today for the church to awake and to join together for a fresh concert of prayer. Why? Because we live in a pagan world. Why? Because, yes, the world and the church are arch enemies. But friends, let's be encouraged. The success of the enemy The devil himself is only apparent. And God's hand, though unseen, is working in 21st century Britain, in 21st century Wales. What we need is for us to understand it, to comprehend it, and to join together in a concert of prayer. For most of my ministry... I've been a student of revival, a student of spiritual awakening. And I have constantly run into one stubborn fact. The fact is, in the recorded history of the Christian church, there has never been a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit in revival that did not begin in persistent, prevailing Desperate prayer. So why, why would we think it would begin without it now? Revival has never come because men placed it on a calendar. It has come because God placed it upon men's heart. And they prayed. I have read again this afternoon. Thanks, Mays, for bringing it back. (laughs) Why Revival Tarries by Leonard Ravenhill. Just felt prompted in the week to reread it before tonight. He begins his book by calling the prayer meeting, the Cinderella of the church. How right he was. That was 1959-ish. Has anything changed? Certainly not in the free west. The prayer meeting remains. The Cinderella of the church. My friends, we live in a pagan world, but our God is at work. What we need to do is tune ourselves into Him by His Holy Spirit, understand what He's endeavoring to do, and lay hold of the throne of grace in prayer.